The, the Wine and Spirit Trade Association um, is, is often asked to explain what it does, and the, the general explanation, the, the elevator pitch, if you like, that, that I give to people, is that we explain government to industry, and we explain industry to government. And I, I was reminded yesterday of, of, a, of a time earlier in my career. Uh, yesterday I was uh, sitting on the seafront at Felixstowe, because it was a nice day, and I saw one of the absolutely huge bulk tankers go out, just full of, um, full of containers, bulk containers. And I, I was reminded of a time not long after 9-11 when uh, I was part of a team of prosecutors um, prosecuting um, exports of goods for, people's, uh, for other people's nuclear programs uh, and things like that. And I remember that the government uh, of another large country said, what we're going to do is we're going to have a program of interdicting cargo ships at sea and searching containers for goods for other people's nuclear programs. So just imagine the cargo ship with six or eight thousand containers on it, stopping it in the middle of the sea and trying to search a container for one container that could be right at the bottom of 13 containers down, um, and it's got a couple of hundred kilos of stuff in it that you don't want somebody to have. And the, the lesson that I draw from that is never underestimate the ability of government to come up with really, really stupid proposals. So it's really important from an industry point of view that we're able to explain to government collectively what it is we're about, why what we're doing matters, and uh, why the regulatory issues need to be dealt with in a, a sane way that works for industry, that works for government, and that works for consumers. So there's the exam question for this session. And when you look at those four points, which I'll just run through quite briefly, um, Clive's already touched on them. Product quality and consistency um, well, I've got the quality word, consistency, reliability. Um, so you're getting the same message there from two speakers. One of the key advantages of being able to transport wines and spirits in bulk is the ability to work in partnership with the winery, the distiller, the shipper, the freight forwarder. You're working in bulk. There's obviously quite large quantities of goods involved, so it follows there's fairly decent quantities of money involved. So it's worth people's while to come up with an arrangement that makes sure that the quality, consistency of product are known at the start of the journey, they're monitored throughout the journey, and they can be measured and understood at the end of the journey so that you get that consistency, reliability, quality, all the way through, um, you're not relying on um, the lifespan of goods that have been cased and kept in case uh, in bottle for a, a period of time. There's a cost implication. There'll be many people here who ship in bulk. The maths is pretty simple. Um, my maths tells me you can get about double the quantity of liquid into a flexi tank than you can in a similar sized container of cased goods. So 
um, you can ship more for your money. Um, it's not a hard equation. There's an environmental benefit in that if you can ship more, you can get it on a bigger ship, you can take it maybe on a different route, you can bring uh, a number of containers of similar products at the same time. So being a player in a market of that size gives you the ability to manage your supply chain more effectively and make some cost savings as well as some environmental benefits of not using the same amount of fuel per bottle that you might use. The final point on this slide, the proximity to market bit. Again, when I was a civil servant, um, we, we had a rule of thumb that if you stood still long enough, the same old arrangements would come round again. Um, but there, there was a, a, a long-standing drive to push down spending decisions and operational decisions to the point nearest the, um, nearest the point where those services were being delivered. So it's the same here. If you're shipping in bulk, you can put your bottling operation nearest to the market where it's being delivered to the point where it's most convenient for your customers, to the point where it's most convenient for their customers, whether those customers are wholesale customers or whether they're retail customers, it matters not at this stage, but you're, you're able to produce the goods in one place and you're then able to um, put them together in another where it's more cost effective to do that. As we'll see in a moment, you can't do that with every product, um, but the proximity to market issue, I think, enables you to do a lot of your industrial processing at a point near to your customer and their customer. You'd have thought it was a no-brainer after that. Well, why doesn't it all go in bulk? But there's some constraints. It doesn't always work. If you look at wines that have a PDO or an IGP, if you look at spirits that have a GI, it's not always possible to bottle them outside the production area. Has anybody ever tried to find the technical specification for a PDO? It's a nightmare. Some of them are quite easy to find. Others, you have to go through the website of the um, Consorcio or the Consejo Regulador and try and find them. Um, they're not all published um, by the EU. Some of them are very easy to find because the body that looks after them um, wants to publicise them. So a good example is the uh, Scotch Whiskey GI. It's very easy to find as part of the Scotch Whiskey regulations. Um, but I've picked out a couple of, exa of examples for you there. Prosecco, the specification for the um, DOCG says it's got to be bottled in the production area. So you can't have bulk Prosecco going out and being bottled somewhere else. You're very welcome to take Prosecco out and bottle Italian sparkling wine, if that's what you want, but then isn't part of the brand value of Prosecco that you're calling it Prosecco. It's not 
and Italian sparkling wine. Um, we see a number of traders every year getting into trouble for having draft Prosecco in their bars because by definition it can't be draft Prosecco because you can't do it in bulk, it's got to be in bottle. Scotch whisky, for those of you who um, deal in Scotch whisky, you'll know that the definition of Scotch whisky is very highly regulated. It's got to be distilled, blended, matured in Scotland. Blended Scotch whisky, so 90% of the product roughly, doesn't have to be bottled in Scotland. It can be bottled wherever you like. So there's an advantage there in that you can take cask strength whiskey at 65% or so, you can then take it to its market and you can then use water from that market to bring it down to consumer strength in the market. So you don't have to export water and pay for it. So, great idea. You can't do that with malt whiskey. Um, you have to bottle that in Scotland. They're changing the technical specifications so you can do larger format bottlings um, and export it in containers of greater than two litres. Um, but you have to be very, very careful with malt. You can't just take out a thousand litre IBC of malt and bottle it somewhere. Um, doesn't work. Other spirits products can be bottled outside their production area. Um, but again, as a producer, and indeed as a, a, a customer, you might not want that. Uh, if you've got a premium product as part of the story of the product and as part of the marketing of the product, you might want to say, it's made in country X, it's bottled in country X, um, the origin and the process by which you've handled it is really, really important. And if you're telling that marketing story, and if that's allowing you to put some premium on the price, you may well want to keep your goods bottled in the market, and that price premium outweighs your transport costs uh, in transporting uh, cased goods. So that's the, the market perception bit of the story. It's not the whole story, and uh, as, as we heard a moment ago, it's perfectly possible to have um, premium goods that are dealt with in bulk. It's something to think about, though, when you're looking at the brand, when you're telling the story around the brand. And, of course, a few minutes ago, I blithely said, oh, well, it makes sense to bottle near to your customers and near to their customers. Of course it does. Oh, but hold on, I've got to buy a bottling plant or I've got to go out and get the services of a contract bottler. Um, now, you don't just walk down to the local contract bottler and say, oh, can you run me um, 100,000 litres or 100 million litres of this product? It's quite a complicated process. You're dealing with alcohol, so there's rules around excise duty, so their bottling plant needs to have the right excise authorizations so you can bottle in duty suspense. They need to have all the right hygiene and handling controls. They need to be able to handle the volume of product. They need to be able to handle the bottle shapes. 
Um, they need to be able to do changeover on the bottling line in the right way. So there's quite a big investment, potentially, in plant and machinery. Are you going to do that yourself? That's quite a big cost. Are you going to do that as a joint venture with somebody else? Are you going to contract it out? There's some fairly complicated negotiations around that to make sure that you get the right facility delivering you the right service. My kids think I'm daft because I enjoy visiting bottling plants and warehouses. I think it's great. And of the, of the many that I've been lucky enough to visit, they are all completely different. Some of them look like a Bond villain's lair. Some of them look um, rather more rustic, shall we say. But they, they all have considerable history and considerable efficiencies that they're able to deliver to the market. But they're not the same. They're not interchangeable. Um, so as somebody looking for a bottling facility and looking uh, about how to, how to manage that relationship, uh, it's not a straightforward thing to do. The more regulatory bit, um, in a way it would be easy to say, well, bulk goods and cased goods, they're all the same, aren't they? They're a product, they're crossing a border, it may be a customs border, or it may be moving within a customs union, but they're on a lorry, they're on a container, they're on a ship, they go to a port, um, they may be consolidated with other loads, they may be moved um, by different modes of transport at different times in, their, in the history of the journey, but they're all basically the same, aren't they? And to an extent that's true, um, because, again, as we heard earlier, you don't manage by exception, and uh, customs rules, excise rules, are no exception to that. They have a rule for all classes of goods. But there are differences. You may find that the tariff for bulk goods is different to the tariff for cased goods. So, at the moment, for example, if you have a third country import to the European Union um, of wine, if it's in a bottle, it's around 13 to 15 euros a hectolitre, depending on um, its ABV. If it's bulk, it's just a shade under 10 euros a hectolitre. Now, it's only a few pence a bottle in the end, but if you're transporting 22,000 litres, 220 hectolitres, um, that's a fair chunk of cost that you have to take into account and if you can save that by transporting it in bulk that's good. This may be more important after the UK leaves the EU when the customs wall will be around the UK um, or at least in theory unless we're in a new customs union um, and so movements from the EU would become third country imports and would then bear a tariff. So bulk or cased, that tariff could make quite a difference. Processing reliefs. If you are bringing goods into the EU or after Brexit into the UK, but you intend to re-export those goods to sell them on another market, 
the general rule is you don't have to pay customs duty twice, so you could bring those goods into the UK, process them without paying an import duty, and then only pay an import duty when you take them to their country of destination. That's fine. Um, it's, it's rather like components for a motor vehicle um, moving around several countries before they're uh, installed in a final product. So the trick there is that you need to know how much of your product is going to which market and where it's going to most effectively bear a processing relief. So the, um, I, I guess the theory would be that you have it processed in the country that would bear the higher tax and then sell it in the country where the, where the tax is lowest. So you have the processing relief at the highest tax. But that rather depends on which country is your main market as well. So there's some fairly complex um, calculations to do. I'm sure there'll be some guys with spreadsheets who um, are working out where it's most effective to have the bottling plant bearing in mind transport costs, tariffs, processing reliefs that you can get, and where the relative size of the market is to all of that. You have to get the labelling right. If you're labelling goods at the place uh, where you're making them, then you need to have the right label for the right market, so you need to know where the goods are going to get the right label on them. If you're labelling them near to your market, in the market where they're going to be consumed, then in some ways it's relatively easy because you get some unlabeled bottles in um, or you get some bulk in uh, that you're going to put in the unlabeled bottles and then you apply the labels at the time and you can then make sure that you have the right label for that market. Um, the more consistent the labels can be between markets, the easier it makes it for your graphic designers uh, and for the marketing department. Um, but I, I would argue that, that bulk goods gives you some flexibility over labelling because you can then um, hone your labellings down and focus, focus on the right label for the right market. And finally on this, back to the quality bit, um, you need to be able to demonstrate that the goods you're bringing in are the goods that you say they are, that they're fit for human consumption, that they hit the right technical standards. Um, so the VI1 form for wine that everybody knows and loves, um, that demonstrates what the product is that comes into the European Union at the moment, you need to be able to demonstrate that your product technically meets the mark. Um, as well as being of the quality um, demanded by your customer. And what happens after you get the goods into, in this example, the UK? We've talked about the um, choices of bottling plant. Once you've got the goods and you've bottled them and you've put them um, in cases on their way to the supplier, how do you manage that bit of the supply chain? Is it coming into your bottling facility? Is it being bottled, put in cases, and going straight out? Or is it having to be warehoused for a while? In which case, you're gonna need 
an excise warehouse somewhere, you may need that excise warehouse separate from the one attached to the bottling plant, depending on the size, depending on where your customers are, depending on where their distribution centres are, and how that part of the supply chain is going to work. So again, there's some fairly complicated thinking to do about how long those goods are going to stay in warehouse and where they're going to be warehoused. Again, with EU withdrawal, you may have to think about getting your goods into a customs warehouse as well as into an excise warehouse because the two are not the same, they have different authorizations, and as part of your due diligence with your supply chain managers, you are going to need to say what sort of warehousing is this going into, have we deferred customs duty, have we deferred excise duty, at what point are we paying those duties, who's holding the guarantee, how does that work with our payment terms, um, both in terms of perhaps paying people at the uh, production end and in terms of receiving payment from the uh, supplier end. So again, there's some quite complicated sheets about what you have to pay, when you have to pay it, and when you might receive payment for it. Uh, how do the credit terms work with duty deferment, work with guarantees, work with VAT? Um, quite complicated stuff. And then, of course, you're bringing the product in. Again, we come back to the, the marketing. Is it a niche product, even though it's in bulk, or is it something that's um, more at the consumer everyday end? So how do the margins work on that, um, given all the rest of the demands of the supply chain? I think for me, what's the plan is the, one of the most important questions you can ask of yourselves. I regularly get a phone call that goes along the lines of, I've just been on holiday and the winemaker there was a lovely guy, I'm sure I can bring this in and make a business out of it. Now at that point, I'm, my head's just about hitting the desk. Um, because it's quite clear that as well as probably lacking any industry knowledge, um, the person on the other end of the call just has no plan. Fortunately, you're all light years ahead of that. Um, you're in a position to have a plan, to have a plan B, and probably to have a contingency plan C and D after that as well. So, um, for me, that's the, uh, an absolute key, having a plan. Understanding the benefits of bulk in terms of quality, reliability, cost and environmental impact, proximity to market, all good stuff. But do be aware, it's not all on the plus side. There are some constraints. There are some things you may not be able to ship in bulk and the level of commitment in having a supply chain that goes all the way from producer through bottling plant through to your customer, that's quite a big commitment and um, 
it's starting to look a bit more like an oil tanker rather than a rib. So um, be aware of the commitment that you're taking on, um, but very much around the planning and understanding what your supply chain has now become. Thank you very much.